we are, have an incredible ability to withstand uh, many nights of imperfect sleep. But if, that be, if your pattern of living is described by inadequate, disrupted, uh, per, imperfect sleep, then whether it's because of your own doing or because of a sleep condition that you have, that is going to really cause a, a major acceleration of the aging process, the disease process, mm-hmm. and a diminution of your ability to think robustly for whatever capability you have. Collective Insights is a voyage through topics and technologies revolutionizing human well-being. Groundbreaking approaches for a better world and a better life await you. Welcome to Collective Insights. Welcome to the Neurohacker Collective podcast. My name is Daniel Schmachtenberger. I'm with Neurohacker Collective, work here in uh, research and development. We're very excited to have uh, Dan Party with us today, talking on the topic of sleep. This is the first of a two-part series we're going to do, where we get into the foundations of sleep, sleep physiology, its effects on psyche, cognitive performance, health, and um, foundational things to optimize sleep. Next time, we'll be getting into uh, more advanced uh, sleep pathology, sleep physiology, and sleep hacking. Dan is a uh, sleep researcher at Stanford and at Leiden University in the Netherlands, and he's he actually did a lot of the uh, groundbreaking work on the effects of GHB on sleep, which was really fun and uh, uh, many interesting things related to health, wellness, um, biohacking, and the topic of sleep. And I think that if you really take the things that we talk about here today and implement them, it's probably worth as much or more than everything else that you could do in your healthcare combined. So this is just that foundational of a topic. That's why we're doing this as a two-part series because that that still just scratches the surface. Dan, it's a delight to have you here. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, it's a delight to be here. I, I do quite a few pod ta- podcasts on the subject and uh, I've been really looking forward to this. So thanks for having me on. Yeah, this is fun. And even though today we're going to be doing foundational stuff that some people um, are already aware of, I imagine that there's going to be more granularity and insight that happens. Um, So important topic. So let's just start kind of at the very top with um, what is sleep? What's actually happening when people sleep? What's the evolutionary purpose? What's the physiologic purpose? What do we know about it? What's still mysterious? Yeah, that's funny. Um, Sometimes those those questions that are so simple are also some of the hardest to answer. What is sleep? What is health? Um, I remember giving a presentation one time and somebody asked, what is health? And uh, I stumbled on that one because I hadn't thought about a, you know, a clean answer. But So sleep is something that happens across uh, really all species that live on this planet. Uh, it is likely in response to the fact that our planet undergoes cycles of light and dark. And for most, but not all animals, because you have diurnal and you have nocturnal animals. So some are up during the day, sleep at night, some are up at night, sleep during the day. You have a period though, where the body goes into rest. Now it used to be thought that sleep itself was a exclusively behaviorally quiescent time. The brain and the body would shut down and there wasn't much going on. It was just a rest period. We know that's not the case now. In fact, there are some parts of the brain that are more active during sleep than at any other part uh, of the day. So also, it's also very, it's been a challenge to to address and to even kind of declare what is the purpose of sleep? 
we know that there's multiple things that happen, but expressing one sort of unitary, uniform thesis about what sleep is has been uh, sort of notably challenging. We do know, however, that, you know, so for example, some very important things that do take place more recently, we know that during sleep, the brain will sort of power cleanse itself and clear out the byproducts of energy usage that took place during, during wake time activity. As the brain is awake, it's thinking, it's, it's using a lot, a lot of energy. In fact, 25% of glucose goes towards this small organ. So it takes a sort of lion's share of, or a disproportionate amount of energy to run the brain. That's probably not too much of a surprise. It's doing a lot. As a result of that high energy usage, we see energy byproducts, and those byproducts need to be cleaned out of the brain. If not, they can become toxic and build up. And we see that. And actually, we now see a very clear relationship between sleep loss, whether it's from chronic sleep issues like sleep apnea or obstructive, uh, yeah, excuse me, sleep apnea or insomnia, and the both uh, sort of beginning of a disease, the advancement of a disease, um, and even premature mortality. So there's really no part of the body that goes untouched when we don't get the sleep that we need. It is a physiological requirement. There is no way around it. And but in our world today, we definitely have uh, things that encroach upon our sleep. A lot of it is voluntary sleep curtailment because of the way that we live, because of extended work times, because of extended commute times, because of captivating and engineered for reward you know, activities and shows in the evening. We stay up later than our body wants to. Mm-hmm. And... Um, and that is a challenge that we have to face. And so I think one of the, one of the really great things about listening to this show now or, uh, is, is empowering sleep with value and really attending to it is one of the most important things you can do. Um, and that's really what learning about its intricacies will yield. Motivation to attend to it in a manner that's going to get you results that you want, health, performance. So it is this interesting thing that we're learning more about sleep in neuroscience and endocrinology and cellular science and uh, psychiatry, like all these fields are studying sleep and learning um, more and more about it every day, every week. And yet there's still, there's still some kind of like profoundly mysterious things that are happening and like yeah. what REM sleep is doing and what aspects of memory consolidation are in REM versus Delta. And, um, but is, and we're going to get into what the different phases of sleep are and what happens in those different phases. And we kind of know more as we get more granular. Yeah. Is it pretty fair to say, um, and in the way that matches most people's intuition, the purpose of sleep is physiologic regeneration. There's lots of physiologic and psychologic regeneration. I think that that's fair to say. And that things like immune activity and anabolic process and certain kinds of antioxidant process, like there's whole things that pretty much only happen during sleep or during phases of sleep where if we're not getting enough of those phases, those critical physiologic processes are just not really happening. Yeah, that's absolutely true. We know pretty much all, as I was saying earlier, there's no part of the body that goes untouched if you're not getting good sleep. And yes, that that is what ha- actually happens. So you know if we have selective suppression of REM sleep or you're not happening to get deep sleep or you don't get enough sleep. So your sleep staging is fine, but your sleep time, the amount of time that you're asleep is inadequate. So your body wants to sleep more, but you're not giving it that. Or your sleep timing is off, which is a topic we can get into. So let's say you, let's say you just, because eight hours is used commonly as get eight hours of sleep. 
you typically sleep between midnight and eight, but you decide to go to bed between four and get up at, at noon. You got eight hours of sleep, but it's not going to actually be as restorative. It's not going to do everything you want sleep to do because you've slept during a time when your body is not used to sleeping in that period. Now, that doesn't mean if you didn't go to bed at 4 a.m. every night and wake up at noon. If you did that every day, your body would adjust to it and you would do, well, there's still some challenges because you're having to then sort of control your environment a little bit because we have this very intimate relationship with nature, the light that's coming into the day, the tone of that light, the intensity, and in a natural environment without artificial light, without, you know, if you're living in the savannah, for example, the, those cues are going to help to signal Physiological, the timing of physiological processes of which sleep and wake behavior are one slash two, depending on how you look at it. So absolutely, your body is, this is a, is a fundamental state. We try to cheat it a lot. And uh, you know, I'm not saying that as some sort of condemnation about it. You know, hey, you shouldn't do it. It just happens. It happens in our world. There's so many good and not so good reasons why it does happen. But again, I think having an awareness and then understanding some of the things that are actually going to affect it um, is going to be, is, is a, can it change the rest of your life? It can actually change the rest of your life and how long you live. So you touched on a lot of things that I want to come back to in terms of circadian rhythms and chronobiology and chronotypes and yeah. but like to just have some foundation so that people understand more. Can we dive into what's happening during sleep in terms of phases of sleep? Yeah. So REM and non-REM and delta sleep. And it's a great place to start. So is sleep this monolithic state? No. We know we go through different cycles and different stages during sleep. The two big categories are non-REM and REM. REM was described first. Uh, Bill DeMent at Stanford um, wasn't the first to describe it, but was he founded the first sleep clinic in the world and did a huge amount to, you could say, popularize sleep as a meaningful medical and scientific subject. So he's made you know, invaluable contributions to this, to the field. Um, he also has probably the, one of the most popular classes at Stanford and he tells people, uh, he turns off half the lights in his class and says, if you want to get, get some sleep, you can do it over here. And, uh, and he says, he takes it as an honor if people sleep during his class because <laughs> it means that they're listening to what he says. Um, but anyhow, going back to the steep sleep stages, REM was originally identified by rapid eye movements. So when, the brain is in this stage, you can see ocular activity behind the eyelids. The, the eyes move, so I'm not sure if you can see, but I'm moving my eyes back and forth behind my closed eyelids. And that behavior, that, that physiology was, was visible to people that were observing people who were sleeping. It is a very distinct state from non-REM. So non-REM is what we first enter into. You go, there's four different stages, stage one, two, three, and four. Stage three and four are now discussed as one stage called slow-wave sleep. So that's a little bit of the sort of the history there, but now it's stage one, two, and slow wave sleep. Stage one is very light. You might in fact even think that you're still awake, but a polysomnography, so this is something that is measuring brain activity and also other uh, parameters around the body, that is detecting, yes, indeed, you are in, in stage one sleep. Stage two is a little bit deeper. There's other physiological characteristics of that, sleep spindles, K-complexes. And then the deep, deep sleep, the one that actually really will reduce a lot of what is considered sleep pressure, which is the, this factor that actually makes you feel sleepy, that's taking place during slow-wave sleep. We want that. We, we feel really good, typically, when we get slow-wave sleep um, over the night. And we go through different cycles. So in the beginning, this is a 
more of a common way that sleep happens, you have 90 minute cycles and about four to five of them over the night. During the first cycle, you have a lot more non-REM sleep and you have a little bit of REM towards the end of that cycle. But as the night continues in the last cycle, you have a lot more REM and you have a lot less slow wave sleep or non-REM sleep. Now, REM sleep is also considered the gateway to waking. Your physiology, if you look at your brainwave activity during REM, it looks almost indistinguishable. I mean, it is distinguishable from a PSG, but if you were to look at the squiggles made on a paper, it looks just like wake activity. Compared to non-REM, you see that it's this cycle activity that gets deep as the sleep gets deeper, sort of the, the, the amplitude of the rhythm elongates and heightens. And so you very, very distinct in terms of what these sleep stages look like when you're measuring brain activity. You also, during REM, you see heightened blood pressure, heart rate. This is a stage where you are actively dreaming. Mm-hmm. You also have muscle paralysis, which is a physiological conserved mechanism. So it makes a lot of sense. If you're, if you're, let's say, dreaming that you're fighting somebody, you actually want your body to have its muscles paralyzed because if you don't, you could actually injure somebody. And there's a disorder called REM sleep behavior disorder where that paralysis doesn't happen. And actually people have been acquitted of murder because they've been able to verify that, yes, they have REM sleep behavior disorder and they were dreaming that they were being attacked and they choked their bed partner. Sad, but true and illustrative of what, you know, what's happening here. So those are the different types of stages of sleep. That is, if you, you can look at something called a hypnogram, which monitors the sleep activity across, across the night. And yeah, there's a lot of different things that are taking place during sleep. The concatenation of the different stages, so how sleep stages will link from one to the next is also important for sleep doing what you want it to do. And sleep can be disrupted in a variety of ways. As I mentioned earlier, it can be truncated, so you want to get eight hours, but you get six. It could be shifted, so you, you slept eight hours, but it was at a time where you usually don't sleep. It can be fragmented, where you have lots of what are called microarousals, where you're waking up. You're waking up frequently, although... People that have sleep apnea have a lot of microarousals and fragmentation, but you might not know it. You went, you went to bed at midnight, you woke up at eight, and as far as you're concerned, you were asleep the whole time. But on an EEG, you kept transitioning out of sleep into wake little, for just a second. You don't remember any of it, but you feel like you got no sleep at all. So, and then you can also have certain stages suppressed. So for example, antidepressants will suppress REM, uh, alcohol will suppress deep sleep, so there's a lot of different ways that sleep can be disrupted or inadequate, but those are different sleep stages and how each one of them can be perturbed. So just so people can think of it kind of simply, let's say we've got lighter sleep, phases one and two of non-REM sleep. We have REM, dreaming sleep, and we have deep sleep. Deep sleep meaning delta slow wave. To just kind of roughly think of it that way is yeah. fairish. And so we want to make sure there's enough total sleep and that specifically there's enough REM and delta which are the most regenerative elements, right? Yeah, yeah. I think um, perhaps I would switch that a little bit. I'd say light, deep, and then REM, since those are sort of both yep. categorized. Um, and, but yes, you do want to get an adequate amount of, if you, if you miss a lot of, let's say, light sleep, um, you're going to have less physiological consequences. And yet still important things are happening during that phase. So the idea of necessarily... In the past, some people have written about all you need is REM sleep. And the idea that there are only certain, certain types of sleep are actually physiologically important is not true. It's also, again, how they concatenate with one another it's where, or link one to the next. Um, and then adequacy of time in those different stages. 
I don't know that I have ever seen insufficient amounts of phase one and phase two relative to REM and Delta, which is why it's just not really an issue to think of. It's like getting enough sleep and then specifically getting enough REM and Delta, which are the ones that can be insufficient relative to total sleep amount. Is it, would you say that's fair? Yeah, I, I would, except okay. here's, the, here's the one issue. If you are significantly sleep deprived and you then go to sleep, um, there is pressure that builds up that will let you get a lot more slow wave sleep and REM sooner. Right. So the idea is, well, I just, you know, I got an hour and a half of slow wave sleep and an hour and a half of REM and then I woke up, so I'm fine. Mm-hmm. That is, that's not a good way to look at it. Yet right. some people in the polyphasic sleep community, which I just introduced a term here, were planning their sleep around that logic. Sure. That's why I mentioned it. Fair. Uh, we'll come back to polyphasic and bimodal sleep in a little bit because that's interesting but a little bit more foundational stuff to lay down yeah so so circadian rhythms so when we're sleeping we've got these different actually wait we should go a little bit further into those phases of sleep what primarily is happening in slow wave sleep that's meaningful and what primarily is happening in REM sleep that's meaningful that we know of with some certainty so far yeah it's been it's been a challenge to understand. In fact, you know what? I'm going to do something. I'm going to do something else. I'm going to introduce a model because this will help to explain uh, this question perfectly. The most cited sleep publication ever is from Alexander Borbet. He's a Viennese professor who introduced a completely world-changing model called the two-process sleep and wake model. And what that model basically represents is that during the day, from the moment you wake up until the moment you next have an opportunity to sleep, you are building up sleep pressure. That's a concept, right? Building up sleep pressure. What is the physiological, neurological correlate of sleep pressure? What that means is what's happening to kind of describe this observation that you get that sleepiness is building. So we don't get, however, if you think about it, you don't wake up in the morning and get sleepier and sleepier as the day goes on. That's not how that works. And that's because the other part of that two-part model is wake drive. So counteracting this building sleep pressure is a drive to promote wakefulness in the brain that meets it when working correctly, perfectly. And so what happens is you wake up in the morning and you have this wake drive that matches how much sleep pressure you have very low sleep pressure and so wake drive is very low and as the day goes on sleep pressure builds but so does wake drive and your sleepiness tends to be pretty even so there are days that you have that are good days and days that are have that are not so good days but you don't you tend to be even except in the afternoon there's a little bit of a dip in that wake drive which is why we get sleepy but then what's called the wake maintenance zone is the highest activity of your wake activity is between the hours of between like about five and 10, depending on when your sleep period is, but for like a normal person who maintains a normal sleep period. In fact, it's one of the hardest to sleep during that time. So that's why if you've been up for 24 hours and you, as you continue to stay up, it actually gets easier than it was previously, not harder. So that's an, it's a model that's good to understand and I'll describe what's happening with both. But I wanted to talk about it because the important thing is what is this sleep pressure? And that was a very difficult to understand. And in fact, I think while we have really good confidence that adenosine, which is a nucleoside that is involved in energetics or the production of ATP, right? Adenosine triphosphate, right? Now adenosine is then cleaved as energy is produced from ATP. 
and it builds up extracellularly. So outside of these, the cells in the brain, you see this accumulation of adenosine, and that is what we believe, sleep pressure. So there are receptors around the brain, and they're, under, they're perceiving how much sleep pressure there is, or adenosine. And the way to really understand this is the most famous of all adenosine and blockers is coffee. Is coffee. Um, you might have heard of it, <laughs> listener, right? So we all drink coffee in this world and we get an immediate boost in how we feel. Now, it's definitely not the only thing that is determining how awake we are. That's why we can't sort of over, we can't resolve all of our sleep pressure from a terrible night's sleep with just a cup of coffee. There's a certain amount of benefit that we will get and then it sort of maxes out and we just get anxious after that. But that is really important to understand. So as that sleep pressure builds, then at night, what happens is this wake drive that has been counteracting it all night now dips down and you have this unopposed sleep pressure and that causes you to go to sleep and it causes you to get into deeper stages of sleep. It promotes the activity of slow wave sleep and during the activity of slow wave sleep, it actually will purge or reduce that sleep pressure so you start the day fresh. I know that was a bit complicated. It's actually a little easier to explain with graphs, but those are some really fundamental concepts to what's happening uh, in, in this for intimate dance behind the scenes right. that is determining how alert you feel right now. So this sleep homeostasis cycle, right, which is the balance of sleep pressure, wake pressure. So one of the things that's happening during slow wave sleep is purging the uh, sleep pressure chemistry. That's right. Now, obviously, that's affecting our subjective experience, but the only reason there is sleep pressure chemistry is to make us sleep for other reasons, right? There's a whole bunch of other physiology right. that's happening, memory consolidation, anti-inflammation, et cetera. So, yeah. um, com so coming back to that, uh, obviously getting the slow wave sleep makes us feel less sleepy. Yeah. What else do, do we know though about like the anabolic chemistry, the tissue repair, the immune process of what's happening then? Yeah. During slow wave sleep, you also will have the highest release of growth hormone, particularly in men, um, than at any other time during a 24-hour period. In fact, most growth hormone released happens during slow wave sleep. By the time you're 60, for most people, the amount of growth hormone that you are producing is 15% of what it was when you were younger. And that corresponds almost perfectly with the reduction that is typically seen across the lifespan in the ability to generate slow wave sleep. And there's this, been, this, this idea that is, is sleep itself actually promoting the aging process because as we have less ability to get into these deeper stages, does that then promote less of an anabolic reparative physiology? And then does that then promote what you see uh, in terms of the loss of muscle mass, sarcopenia, um, and even like the loss of regenerative functions in the brain and the heart tissues, et cetera? Yes, probably. Um, there's also a bit of danger, not to go into a different topic, but there's also some dangers of, you know, is, the, is it necessarily pathological or is it protective? Because if you, as you get older, do you really want a lot of growth stimulus in tissues that might actually become more cancerous um, because of senescent cell buildup, et cetera? So we have to be careful sometimes by trying to, as we try to optimize, particularly within horm growth hormones. Um, but yes, this is one thing that's taking place during slow wave sleep. And that's one of the reasons why physiologically you get a really good deep sleep at night and you feel 
more restored the next day. Your tissues feel better. You ever go to bed, you feel achy in your eyes. You know, you're just ready for sleep. But you wake up in the morning and magically you feel better. Well, part of that is because of the hormones that are released. Those hormones mostly are taking place during slow wave sleep. I think that there's a meaningful thing to get into here because, you know, HGH dropping with aging, people supplementing HGH. Um, there's a whole question about is that possibly carcinogenic or not for certain kinds of. T- there's a lot of debate around that. We'll, we'll not go there now for now, but with regard to endogenous HGH from sleep, since increased s- sleep quality and increased slow wave sleep in particular is associated with decreased mortality from all causes and including it affects carcinogenesis, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because a lot of what's happening like with the carcinogenic process with the body's ability to uh, have immune cells identify and kill cancer cells and to address the radicals, all of that happens during slow wave sleep also. Yes, that's, that, is, that is also right. So that's a very important distinction that you made uh, is somehow physiologically maintaining higher levels of restorative hormones different than exogenous application of those hormones. And I would say that the answer is, my instinct is that yes, it is, because the panoply of hormones that are going to be released in response to uh, good sleep generation are going to be more coordinated than the exogenous administration of one hormone that is important in that process. Right. My understanding is during slow wave sleep, we've got the peak in growth hormone, and that also means changes in growth hormone releasing hormone, IGF-1, like all of the, that whole process. Prolactin is um, releasing in a spike, testosterone, androgens are changing in association with decrease in certain cytokines, changes in immune markers, inflammation, right? Like there's just a whole complex of things that are associated with uh, increased killing of pathogens increased destruction of senescent cells, autophagy, apoptosis, and, and increased anabolic regeneration of all tissues. Yes. So to talk about the immune system, very interesting work that's been done there. Circadian factors, which are these 24-hour, the, the, again, this circadian system is cycles of 24-hour activity, behavior, physiology, autonomic activity. During what, when we go to sleep, that will regulate the immune system in our gut when we get, and in fact, it will actually turn, it'll dial our immune system at times up and it'll also dial it down. And both are important for health. When you dial it up too much, like you see with sleep loss, you actually can uh, kill off too much uh, commensal bacteria and you can cause dysbiosis. So sleep can cause problems with your gut and intestinal health permeability issues as well. So, you know, I I love to think of the body as like a fish tank. You know, a fish tank is so fragile to maintain. You have to maintain the, you know, the balance in that water so well for the coral to live, for the fish to live. And we are no different. Um, And so, and part of this whole equation is, again, the importance of sleep topic. Yeah, I mean, it's why I wanted to do this as one of the early podcasts and go deep with you on it is in kind of thinking about neurohacking, all things we can do to affect the mind-brain-body interface for all meaningful psychological and cognitive purposes. Mm -hmm. It really kind of puts sleep in one category and then everything else in other categories because of just this is where the regeneration of the regenerative pathways themselves happens. Yes. Um, This is where the homeodynamic 
processes themselves get upregulated yeah. and everything from cell biology and bottom up genetic processes to top down neuroendocrine processes. So yes. like, you couldn't have picked a more important area to research as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. And I have to admit, I stumbled into it. I was working at a pharmaceutical company almost 15, 20 years ago, and uh, they had the, the drug sodium oxidator GHB for narcolepsy. To make this point quickly, because of that, I found myself in the sleep field. And I very quickly realized that understanding sleep and to research it, to evaluate it, is an incredible window into the body. We sometimes can think of it in, in sort of an encapsulated fashion. Oh, it's sleep. It's the it helps you understand how the entire body works. And therefore, it provides a lifetime of interest and challenge to understand how the body works. So just a few more things in terms of addressing some of the physiology of sleep deficit in particular, meaning not getting enough sleep or not getting enough quality of sleep. Yes. So when we talk about sleep deficit associated with inf inflammation and cytokine changes. Yes, yes. So we, one of the most sort of important factors to health is the chronic state of inflammation, infl inflammatory state. Why is that? Well, because it creates a toxic environment when we have things that perturb our internal physiology, the result of which is an elevation amount of circulating uh, cytokines or inflammatory markers. Sleep itself is a stressor. So during, as you go into the different stages of sleep, uh, the body will... Uh, oh, there's a huge dance. It's hard to even know where to start, right? Imagine like the spaghetti chart where there's all different things happening. Um, but in response, you have a decrease in your autonomic nervous system activity, particularly the sympathetic nervous system. And downstream of that, you have activation of uh, your adrenal cortex. So you have a decrease in, in as a dance in cortisol. So in fact, this sort of dance that's happening in the brain is superior to the entire neuroendocrine system. So what happens downstream, all those hormones are being controlled by that, that physiology that's taking place uh, in response to sleep loss. Now, if you, or excuse me, in response to sleep initiation and the sleep process, when you don't get enough sleep, your body perceives that as another stressor. And what this can lead to is a heightened degree of, of circulating inflammatory factors. And what does that do? It does a lot of things in the body, one of which is to create cortisol resistance, right? If you're constantly having too much cortisol circulating in the body, then the tissues, wait, what does cortisol usually do? It dampens down inflammation. What happens when your cells become resistant to cortisol? Well, you actually have increased levels of circulating inflammatory factors. This can lead to conditions that look like Cushing syndrome, where you start to develop abdominal obesity. It can lead to cognitive, cognitive issues, brain fog. Uh, so we have an incredible ability to withstand uh, many nights of imperfect sleep. But if, that be, if your pattern of living is described by inadequate, disrupted, uh, per, imperfect sleep, then whether it's because of your own doing or because of a sleep condition that you have, that is going to really cause a, a major acceleration of the aging process, the disease process, mm -hmm. and a diminution of your ability to think robustly for whatever capability you have. 
Now, just looking at the inflammation dynamics, obviously there's a lot of other dynamics we can look at regarding hormones and EEG patterns and memory consolidation, but just yeah. inflammation. I was fascinated some of the research of how little sleep deprivation was required to raise CRP, which mm -hmm. means increased heart disease and cardiovascular risk. And, and that like within just a couple hours of insufficient sleep, we got elevated TNF alpha, elevated IL-6, TGF beta. And it's like, that means increased risk of almost all kinds of autoimmune neurodegenerative cancers. I mean, that's, that's kind of like a, a profound thing to realize. Yeah. And so if someone is wanting to prevent pretty much all chronic diseases, then decreasing level of circulating cytokine is like a critical thing. Mm -hmm. It's probably the case that Adequate, high-quality sleep is the most effective thing we know across all of those different pathways. You know, it is, it is a, a really fun intellectual question to address. Um, and at the same time, when I've thought about this, I, I describe physical activity and diet and sleep as imagine a chair and imagine that each one of those components is the leg of a chair. And then to say, okay, which, which leg is most important for the functioning of this chair? So at, while I actually agree that it is one of the most actionable, important elements to our health and to the quality of our life, we're going to get into some pretty interesting details, I know, I'm sure. Um, at the same time, some people will get great sleep and then not get enough physical activity. They eat terrible, right? There's all, every different permutation or combination of that can happen. Each one of those independently can cause a chronic state of, of inflammation. And so while it is the nice thing about sleep is think about the difference between sleep and food. I say, I, I often say, I love my job because I'm telling people to do something that they love. Go get a great night's sleep. Who doesn't love that? Versus don't eat the ice cream <laughs> or, you know, insert your, you know, whatever highly palatable food that you love that you can overdo easily, right? It's a different sort of quality. And yet it still has its own challenges, right? The challenge now, the, the equivalent to the ice cream is don't stay up and watch another episode of Game of Thrones. And yet it's extraordinarily compelling to when that is your free time, your, you know, and that's when you get to actually, you know, do some of the things that you love. And to dial back on that is really hard, particularly also to know that, for example, TV watching can alert you. So you don't really feel sleepy. Right. Um, and so you just stay up until you actually do feel sleepy. But if you were in a natural environment, sleeping out in a tent, if, if anybody goes camping and you fall asleep sometimes an hour and a half before you usually do, you know how our environment can sort of coercively get us to do things that are unhealthy just because it tricks our physiology. So I just sort of segued into some of the things that sort of matter for good sleep, you know, but I wanted to say that this is in terms of, you know, sleep is extraordinarily important. Um, and yet, it's a great opportunity. The way that I like to think about it is getting good sleep helps you do everything else well yeah. because it increases your capacity to do that, to do them, to live in accordance with your own ideals for actually being healthy, which means eating well, getting physical activity, performing well. So I, yes, I think you could make a really strong argument that sleep could be the most important one of them. And yet at the same time, you could take the other side of the coin and say, you know, they're all important and sleep is absolutely necessary for yeah. long-term health and performance necessary but not sufficient and yeah i was actually about to to say something related to that um so i'm glad you brought it up which is even though we like to 
think of the body in terms of having these regulatory processes where it will lower things that get too high and raise things that get too low, which is true. It can also have places where it gets into virtuous or vicious cycles and uh, where you get kind of runaway feedback processes. And so inflammation and sleep is one of those interesting ones where sleep decreases inflammation and then lower inflammation makes it easier to get better quality sleep. One of the classic problem, one of the causes of poor quality sleep is uh, inflammation, right? Which yeah. decreases how deeply one goes into slow wave sleep, et cetera. And so someone eating inflammatory foods or, you know, anything, other physiologic dynamics that go on that cause inflammation, toxicity, pathogenicity can damage sleep quality, which then in turn damages one's ability to address that inflammation. So I think that's a kind of classic example of where we really want to do everything it takes to get out of a vicious inflammatory cycle with sleep and other things and into a virtuous one. Totally. And, and I'll mention that the effects of the immune system on sleep are dynamic. One other uh, correlate for sleep pressure is TNF-alpha, not like adenosine, which accumulates extracellularly as the day goes on from energy usage. We also see an increase in TNF-alpha. That is a, you know, sometimes it's easy to describe aspects of healthy physiology as only bad, not to say that you are doing that, but, you know, like for example, um, you know, cholesterol, right? Bad cholesterol, good cholesterol. So does bad, so does bad cholesterol, should we just get rid of it altogether or does it have any sort of physiological purpose? And then there's also the difference between acute uh, issues of getting one night of bad sleep to chronic, right? What is, what happens over long-term usage or long-term condition? So we do know that with one of the reasons why we're more sleepy when we're sick is because of immune factors that actually promote sleepiness. One of the reasons why people that have chronic sleep, um, uh, you know, uh, sorts of other sorts of inflammatory conditions, it can disrupt this, the immune markers themselves can disrupt the sleep. And so it depends on the balance. It's almost like exercise, a little bit of exercise relative to how much you get can make you sleep really well. And then too much can actually disrupt your sleep. So, you know, there's that U-shaped relationship manifests itself in so many different ways in our physiology. Immune markers is one of those ways. So we've just, I mean, we've just touched on it. We've talked a little bit about the effect of sleep on uh, physiologic dynamics that affect disease. This is also relevant to aging. Um, but like, why do bodybuilders make sure to get enough sleep? We, we haven't talked about anabolism that much yet. Yeah. Yeah. Well, one of the, one of the really important things that a lot of young bodybuilders need to learn, the ones who do make much better gains, is that you don't grow by providing the stimulus in the gym. Right? That's where there's the stimulus for growth is provided. You grow or you build your muscles uh, in response to that stimulus when you give it the right nutrients and when you let the healing process happen. People that take you know, anabolic steroids for the purposes of bodybuilding, they can, they can induce a condition where they can grow faster and they can train harder and more regularly, but they, you know, they, you're kind of artificially inducing that anabolic environment. For, people, for the vast majority of people who are physically active and lifting weights who are not taking anabolic steroids, um, then you need to create the right situations to allow for that healing to happen so that the hard work that you're putting into the gym pays dividends in terms of you know, growing muscles and uh, having joint tissue repair 
having fibrous tissue repair and having, of course, the muscle tissue repair. And that sort of dance of the 24-hour different cycles of hormones is, they're all, there's so many that are necessary for that, you know, again, the healthy functioning. So yes, adequacy of sleep time and good non-disrupted sleep is, is critical. And that's why, but also the things that you do during the day are also really important in order to get good sleep too. Yep. So, yeah. And so then, you know, we've, we've addressed some of the physiology. What can we say about the effects of uh, adequate sleep or uh, inadequate sleep on psychology and cognitive capacity? Yeah. So I'll start with some cognitive capacity and then we can move into some of the psychology. This is the area that I actually spend more time with now. Uh, my interest in sleep is vast, but I decided to focus on looking at the interrelationships between sleep, behavior, and eating. Uh, because obesity is such a massive, massive problem that could bankrupt the world in itself with the, the cost burden um, and the, you know, the suffering burden as well. With having obesity, the risk for your risk increases for over 50 other dis disorders. And one thing that people don't uh, often know is that fat tissue itself will release, uh, is an exocrine gland. It releases hormones into the bloodstream, most of which, there's now 50 different substances that have been identified that are released from fat tissue. The vast majority are inflammatory. So one way to become more inflammatory is to carry a, an excess amount of, um, of, of body fat. And at the same time, um, while that can actually disrupt your sleep, poor sleep increases your risk for being obese by about 55%, according to some estimates. Um, looking at- Wait, I think people should hear that again. Yeah. So a study that was done by Karen Spiegel looked at, showed that one out of uh, prospective longitudinal studies, 81 out of 89 studies that looked at the, if there, to see if there was a connection between reduced sleep and body fat showed that there was a positive finding. So- and that you're in, if you pooled all of those, your risk for obesity is increased by 55% when you, have, when you are getting inadequate sleep. And to, the, to a degree, a sleep level to a degree that is common in our society. In an hour per night, less than one should have, give or take. That's where you start to see, yeah. that's where you start to see that it, the risk becomes um, elevated. And so that's, that was sort of the genesis of my interest of going back to the cognition. But as a result of that, we want to understand what's happening in the brain that is then affecting competitive behavior. Mm -hmm. One thing that I, or appetite, one thing that I've been very interested in, in one of the most well understood, well documented effects of sleep loss is a disruption in your attentional networks or uh, your ability to focus on anything in your environment. So think about ADHD, attention deficit, hyperactivity disorder, attention deficit uh, disorder. If you think about what attention is, it is the ability to filter out information in your environment. So if you think about your perceptual field and you want to look at this car that is coming for you, now that doesn't mean that you can't see the bird that is flying overhead too. That is in your perceptual field. But you, all, you want the ability to filter out information that the brain is determining is not important and to be able to focus and sustain your attention on the information that is. Now, a lot of it, it's a lot easier if it's a car coming for you. Uh, 
it's a lot harder when you know it's multiple browser tabs open and it's less uh, you know there's just a lot to focus on so what is happening with attention well attention is mostly driven by these frontoparietal networks um, so your frontal cortex your parietal cortex and the functional connectivity that they maintain and what happens is you see that during sleep loss um, typically if you look at fmri functional magnetic resonance imaging you see very strong functional patterns where parts of the brain will work together to perform activities so you have now when you're trying to focus on something then the frontal parietal cortex is strongly activated and strongly connected they are working as a functional unit then you have a different type of attention which is your resting state brain you're still alert but you're not necessarily focusing on a specific task so this is something called um, the dmn um, which is the default mode network and the d default mode work network is sort of thinking it's like subconscious in a way it's it is keeping you alert um, while you're awake but it's not necessarily focusing on something specific so if you're walking down the street and you're sort of talking to yourself that's the default mode network which is active similarly under sleep loss the default mode network has well actually the, the basic function of it is that these different areas of the brain that make it up right it's not just one anatomical structure it's different parts of the brain that work together they lose their connectivity to one another they don't function as one unit as well and what happens is that you you don't clearly see if somebody is asked to perform a task on a, in a computer while their brain is being imaged after a night of total sleep deprivation you don't see a very clear default mode network or frontal parietal, uh, frontal parietal network being activated. And so it loses, uh, it loses sort of that, that, that connectivity that is so critical. And that leads to behaviorally, that leads to, an, it leads to the situation. If I were to say, look at that, look at that cat, you could look at that cat. You just couldn't sustain your attention on that cat very long. Right. You can't sustain your attention on something for very long because you have instability in this network. You have intrusions of other parts of the brain that usually don't intrude. And that happens, what ends up happening is that all of the stuff in your perceptual field becomes harder to filter out and harder to pay attention to. And it can lead to a very frustrating day of uh, you know, non-performance. Um, and in the world of eating and behavior, food behavior, it can also lead to making all sorts of interesting and non-helpful uh, decisions. Now, you said harder to filter out and harder to pay attention to, which is a key thing, right? Because we're taking in uh, many orders of magnitude, more bits of information than we can consciously focus on. So specifically, reticular activating system has a lot to do with what's actually relevant and making sure that we're consciously uh, registering what's relevant. And it's my understanding that as sleep pressure builds, specifically as adenosine elevates in the forebrain and glucagon decreases in the forebrain, reticular activating system is one of the first things affected. So actually, the frontoparietal network is far more sensitive to sleep loss and sleep pressure. The subcortical, thalamic, brainstem, and basal ganglia, which are generating this sort of arousal, which is a, a very important part to attention. Those are actually more affected by circadian factors. So if your sleep timing is way off, right, then those, so that reticular activating system and all the different components that make up that arousal system are going to be really, really affected. 
Um, and so in one case, you might have, if you have good sleep timing, but inadequate sleep time, right? So you, go to, you went to bed at midnight, woke, but you didn't go, wake up at eight, you woke up at six or five, then your arousal network might perform better, but your frontal parietal tension network is going to be re- really affected by the remaining amount of adenosine that's there. Yeah. And anyway, the result of which is going to be poor performance and uh, focus instability. We, uh, we did some testing with uh, people on various degrees of uh, sleep deficit, not even that much. I mean, a half hour less than what they would have needed to wake up feeling refreshed in terms yeah. of things like um, CNSVS, their verbal fluency and various mm-hmm. cognitive metrics. And verbal fluency starts dropping very quickly, word mm-hmm. recall. Yeah. Um, it was interesting to see how many things were affected by sleep. One of the things like with qualia, as we were doing our qualia studies that we found is there was some percentage of people that were null responders. They just didn't really have a response. Mm-hmm. When we looked to see if we could find any pattern, there were two patterns that really showed up. People with IBS or IBD, like they had GI issues, so absorbing nutrients might be difficult. Yeah. And people who had sleep issues. And across the board, people who weren't getting delta sleep had a hard time responding because a lot of the chemistry of what we were driving was involving memory consolidation and you know acetylcholine pathways that are that are really um, mediated in slow wave sleep in particular. So then trying to drive more chemistry through a pathway that is not actually getting its process and repair gets kind of rate limited. Yeah. So what you brought up something, when I talk about attention, the other, the other cognitive domain that um, functions almost in unison to uh, flagging attention is working memory, which is a component of executive functioning. And that's the ability to hold multiple things in your mind, whether they're present or not, and then to, to, ju- to juggle and balance and decide and to, it's like your mental whiteboard. And that also is really severely impaired. Um, and some, you know, one, one thing that's very challenging with uh, cognitive neuroscience is task impurity. We think we're studying something specific and there's been a lot of attention that's gone into um, does this task selectively look at executive functionings or working memory or, you know, or that working memory component of executive functions, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, it's, it's important to be able to do that, but it's also, we know that your executive functioning and your working memory and your ability to retrieve and then also, you know, maintain in your, in, in that memory to actually use that information is also severely affected by low arousal and in, uh, in you know, uh, imperfect attention. So yes, it's important to look at them individually. And yet at the same time, we know that uh, these different components are, are all working together ultimately. Network effect. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So we can say that, I mean, there's many things, but sleep deficit, sleep issues, cognitive effect is huge. Yeah. And psychological effect. There's some very interesting studies on uh, depression, anxiety, and even psychotic episodes with a severe enough sleep deficit. Yeah. And, you know, sort of related, I'll, I'll maybe tr- transition, but since we're thinking about sleep pressure, right? So we just talked about sleep pressure, which is adenosine. We can, we can think about it. That there's probably other things too, but that is having a significant impact on the frontal parietal cortex, which is helping you with, with to be able to focus. We also know that an increased adenosine load will trigger the downregulation of dopamine 2 and dopamine 3 receptors. And what does this result in? It results in uh, less expression of these receptors in the, in the striatum, 
Um, and then you also have decreased, because adenosine is blocking these receptors, you have an increased ratio of dopamine 1 receptors to dopamine, dopamine D, D2, D, D3. Now, I know that's pretty technical, um, but what is the sort of result of that? It actually leads to increased risk-related and reward-related approaches to behavior. So this is why casinos make up most of their money late at night. And if you think about what a casino tries to do, they have you artificially stimulated by the environment. They have you artificially stimulated by light and they're giving you just the right amount of alcohol, not too much, sometimes free, disinhibiting. And you end up having a uh, the economic preferences that are calculated in your brain about risk and reward become totally skewed. And you end up, because of this Physio- this chemistry that I just mentioned, you end up doing things like over overvaluing or overestimating your potential to win. So if I put this much down on this hand, I could win X fold more. Now that is typically balanced with a part of the brain that is saying, yeah, but you could lose $500 or 50 bucks or whatever it might be. Well, it turns out that under sleep de- deprivation, you have this sort of optimism bias where you focus much more on what you could win and much less on what you could lose. And if you think about it out of a gambling situation, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of bad things that can happen when you, don't, when you don't focus on consequences. If you carry that through to the day and you were to sort of extrapolate that information and think, well, in a sleep-deprived state, would you are somewhat alerted would those economic preferences still shift? And thinking about it in a food context, that might mean that you're much more likely to focus on the taste of the cookie than actually the risks of eating that cookie and adding to your waistline and poor health. And so it's really, really interesting to look at what happens in gambling tasks and to think about, well, how does this relevant to all sorts of things in life? And that's, a, I think, a very interesting example. Another one, not only with obesity, but also with alcohol behavior as well. So we see that a lot of times people that are, or alcoholics will drink because they think it's going to help them sleep. And the reality is, is that um, they ha- people that have insomnia have a much higher rate of recidivism going back to drinking than those who don't have insomnia. And so you, there's definitely alterations in this reward processing that's taking place. And those are just two of the sort of mechanisms that are, or the, two of the different conditions that you see, obesity promotion and addiction promotion. Is it worth just mentioning briefly orexin and ghrelin and the effect that happens on them during sleep deficit? Yeah, so more so in um, orexin. Um, so ghrelin is, uh, I'll, I'll explain what that one is first. So orexin is also referred to as hypocretin, and that's because it was co-discovered, meaning one lab in Texas discovered it, another lab at Stanford, or Scripps discovered it. Um, the person who discovered it moved to Stanford. And they, you know, that happens all the time. Um, and so forever now you will see, you know, papers that talk about orexin and in parentheses it says hypocretin. Anyway, it's a very important uh, compound in the brain. Um, it is released by what are called parafornicles. So around in the hypothalamus, around the, for, uh, the fornix, there is a small group of cells, maybe 100,000 neurons that are releasing this, this peptide that is essentially this orchestrating the entire wake network. So it is telling the, all the different systems of the brain that are involved in keeping you alert when you should be. It tells them when to be on and tells them when to be off. Now, the best way to think about this is 
people that have narcolepsy are missing orexin or hypocretin. And so if you think about what their sleep and wake behavior is like, they're more like a cat. They can't consolidate their sleep into an eight-hour period, and they can't consolidate their wakefulness into a 16-hour period. So instead, they're up for three hours, sleep pressure builds, and when sleep pressure gets high enough, then they have to sleep. They don't have an ability to sort of orchestrate consistent wake behavior behind that. It's all dependent on that sleep drive. So people that have narcolepsy don't get inadequate sleep if they were in the right behavioral context where they could just take a nap when they wanted to. So they have the ability to get eight hours, but it's just separated over the course of the day. And that makes it very difficult to maintain a job, social relationships, et cetera. So they tend to be very, very sleepy because they don't get an, you know, adequate sleep and they're trying to be up during the day when they, they're, they're, they only can sustain their wakefulness for a certain amount of time. It's also interesting that you mentioned that because it is involved, it has functional dichotomy in that part of the neurons, these 100,000 neurons are involved specifically in this wake generation control. The other part are heavily involved in reward processing. And so one of the value of hypocretin is to translate environmental signals that are happening, whether it's light or other things into physiologically relevant behaviors. Um, and so that the coordination process, again, between what's happening around us to what's happening inside of us and is, is, you know, beautiful, really. Um, ghrelin is also involved in the reward process as well. I won't go into it too much, but it is a, uh, oxidative peptide that is released from the gut. So the fungus of the gut will release this peptide and it is the only gut derived peptide peptide that promotes feeding. All other gut peptides are actually will suppress appetite, whether it's cholecystokinin or GLP-1, PPY, all of those that are released from some part of the gut are helping to suppress appetite. Ghrelin is released in what's called episodic fashion. So as you take in, um, you take in a meal, time goes on, ghrelin starts to rise and you get hungry again. Turns out that uh, ghrelin is also very involved in reward. And so ghrelin and orexin actually work interestingly together to promote the palatability and reinforcement of, of, of food. So if you have something like ice cream that you love and it's energy dense, um, if you were to disrupt that pathway, then the reward effect is significantly reduced. And so there are some drug companies that are looking into uh, trying to establish whether there's a way to block part of that process. But, you know, it's always a little risky to me to think about, um, although it's, it's possible there could be something there. Uh, yeah, I was specifically thinking about the studies that show uh, ghrelin baseline elevates under sleep deprivation. Yes. Yeah. So that, it, yeah okay. It makes sense that, of course, if someone doesn't have enough uh, energy from actual sleep regeneration, that they crave exogenous energy um, in the form of sugar, calories. Yeah. So one of the most interesting... Um, Janet Malcone did some work where they kept people under 88 hours of sleep deprivation and it was around 2000, 1999, 2000. And this is working with David Dinges and some others. And what they found is surprisingly is that um, leptin levels went down. So leptin, people most often think of leptin and ghrelin in the same sentence because they're sort of doing counteracting activities. Leptin is a fat derived peptide that will travel to the brain to signal how much energy we have on our body. And when leptin levels go down, that tells the brain, oh, there's a deficit in energy. And the brain responds by doing a variety of things. It turns on uh, anabolic processes. It actually is, or excuse me, it turns on um, 
it's, it goes down. Sorry, let me think of this a second. Then it's trying to conserve, right? Because it's trying to get your weight back up, right? It is a physiologically, reg- your body fat is a physiologically re- regulated uh, parameter. So that's what leptin does. And that's and what sleep loss does is it causes leptin levels to go down. That independently would make you think that you would eat more the next day. Separately, ghrelin goes up and that, as I just described, makes you hungry. So there's two different things that are happening simultaneously, leptin going down, ghrelin going up in response to sleep loss that are both promoting more food intake the next day. Yeah. Some really interesting work that's taken place as questioned whether this is actually relevant because energy expenditure is greater when we're awake. And so if you were to, let's say, spend four more hours awake by undergoing partial sleep restriction. So instead of going to bed at eight, you went to bed, or excuse me, getting eight hours of sleep, you went to only got four, then you're going to be spend, expending more energy, even if you're sitting there versus sleeping. Could that excess energy expenditure then lead to, is it, is, are these hormonal differences really just reflective of that energy you know, difference? And what they found is actually, yeah. Uh, so this is some work that was done out of um, Colorado and uh, Kenneth Wright's lab. And what they showed is that those hormone differences are what you'd expect, but it still changes eating behavior. So people that then uh, undergo sleep loss at the end of the day, at the end of the day, they end up taking in a lot more calories later in the evening the next day, and that can promote weight gain. And that made people wonder: okay, well, is it these hormones, or is it some? Is it another hormone that's involved in weight regulation, or is this something else that's happening in the brain? that is shifting how we process reward that is making us seek out foods. It's how we process reward and actually how we control that reward with our cognitive control areas. And so it's a, obviously there's a big interplay that's all going on here. They're all involved. Um, but the story that has taken place has been very interesting because you, mm-hmm. you find a little signal that something's going on here. First, you look at the epidemiological connection. Yes, the connection is strong. Then you try to understand what's happening endocrinologically. Yes, you see these alterations in endocannabinoids. You see alterations in uh, leptin and ghrelin. Now, how is that having an effect on energy expenditure? Mm, not Nothing too different there that would describe this. But what's happening else in the brain? Yes, it definitely changes how the brain is operating the next day. And a lot of these changes happen beyond our awareness. So you don't some people, sometimes you can recognize them and sometimes you just can't at all. So, you know, you just all of a sudden say, screw it. I'm going to eat that, that thing that I'm trying usually not to eat. That happens. You have that. It's called effort discounting. You're just much less likely to make an effort towards something that you value when you're in the condition of sleep loss. Which when we think about how many people um, feel just tremendous frustration with themselves regarding their own will failures, uh, how many things that they want to avoid and then they end up doing it, then they hate themselves and but that makes no difference to not being able to avoid it. Yeah. Um, whether we're talking about food things or TV or porn or any kind of behavior that is something someone's wanting to shift yeah. to realize that sleep really has a kind of foundational role in one's ability to actually make choices and uh, both make good choices in the first place and then fall through them is, is a big deal for anyone who wants to shift that dynamic. Yeah. Obviously, again, necessary, but not sufficient, but necessary. Yes, yes, absolutely necessary. A really good point. Um, a friend of mine that I've tried to help with weight regulation over years is a brilliant guy. 
programmer stays up very late. He gets into these zones where he codes, codes, codes until, you know, four in the morning and he's starving because he hasn't actually eaten like 16 hours. And he orders a Nazario's pizza and, you know, consumes three, three to 4,000 calories, like at the, literally the worst time that you could. That's a whole other sub- subject about when the body's taking in calories and if the body's ready to take in calories at that time. And uh, he would beat himself up and he would make all sorts of not so great decisions um, by the virtue of his lifestyle. And part of it was, and he, he would, it hurt him psychologically because he thought he was a failure. He thought he didn't have any self-control. He was a very smart, smart guy, but he had really bad sleep, you know, sleep hygiene, really bad sleep hygiene. Okay. So we've discussed that sleep is relevant for lots of things, like critically relevant for most everything that matters, psychologically, cognitively, physiologically. Yeah. So then, you know, we, we've been kind of referencing terms that we haven't defined and you were just discussing when should someone be eating and when should they be sleeping. So quick overview, what are circadian rhythms? Yeah. So these are repeatable 24-hour processes. Pretty much every organism from single cell organisms to you know mammals have repeating behaviors, whether it's cell cycle growth and repair processes, whether it's when you feel like going to the bathroom to when you feel like eating to when sleep is occurring and when wake is occurring. This is mostly orchestrated through one process, which is light coming into the eye. We have receptors at the back of the retina. They're called intrinsically photosensitive retinal ganglion cells. They were discovered in the mid-90s. So we know we have rods and cones, right? Those cells clearly will help us see light and color. And what they do is they'll transduce photons of light that come into, into the eye and they turn it into a nerve signal that goes back to the visual cortex. In the mid-90s, Cells that have the same capability to transduce light into a nerve signal were found, but these don't go to the visual cortex. Instead, they go to via something called the retinal hypothalamic tract, eventually to the suprachiasmatic nucleus, which is the master clock in the brain. This master clock is keeping time. What time is it? Is it afternoon, evening, night? And then downstream of that, we have clocks throughout our body in every tissue, in every cell. And so that master clock is orchestrating the timing of uh, the activity in those cells as well. Now, those can be decoupled, peripheral tissue and the master clock, and bad things happen when that does happen. That's why eating late at night um, can actually uh, be really problematic. It, we, I just wrote a, a blog uh, about this recently, and um, a discussion is currently taking place on my blog with uh, other people that are chronobiological experts all about this subject. Um, but it's uh, really, really important to our health for many different ways, how well our brains are functioning, how well our arousal system is functioning. And light is that key component there. So what matters with light? Well, it's the intensity of light. It is the timing of when you're getting light. It is the spectrum um, or the, the, the color of the light. Um, and so all of these things matter in terms of the signal that the brain is getting. And we have now things like we 90% of us or most of us spend 90% of our time indoors. So we're not getting a very strong light signal from outside. We have no idea of how seasonality is affecting human behavior, but we know that there are certain seasonal animals, which light completely changes their physiology at certain times of year to then predispose them to gain enough weight for winter. Um, and we also have artificial light. So if you think about it, we're getting much less intensity 
of light during the day because we're indoors. And even though the light is totally adequate, it doesn't necessarily look like it's not very strong. It's not the, it's orders of magnitude stronger when we go outside. The other weird thing is now as the sun goes down, we have those same artificial lights that most people keep on the same intensity. And so now we're missing, we're getting a lot less darkness. Yeah. Not only are we getting much less light intensity, we're getting a lot, le- lot less darkness. Now, what happens under darkness? We have something called dim light melatonin onset, which produces melatonin, which essentially reinforces to that super to that master clock that it is nighttime. So, raccoons, which are nocturnal, they have high levels of circulating melatonin as well. Um, so, it's not necessarily a sleepy horm- sleepiness hormone. It does pr- promote some soporific or sleep-inducing uh, activity, but that's why you tend to see people have to take a lot of it in order to get, in order to feel sleepy. And that, has, that can cause some problems. Um, but what it does more is that it tells the brain, this is the time of day that it is. And that will affect the inner workings of that master clock. But it also has an effect throughout the body as a powerful antioxidant in your gut uh, throughout the body. And so one big problem I think in our health is not only that we're getting um, inadequate light and weird mistimed lighting environments, but we're just getting, we're just living in a lot less darkness than we used to. All right. So you hit on so many things that are interesting there. So we have circadian rhythms where the body has different processes that are optimized at different times. Obviously sleep and wake is the primary thing that we're identifying because it's evolutionarily relevant to be able to be awake and cognitively clear and physiologically responsive, and then to be able to, you know, rest um, adequately and deeply obviously the basis of that was that we live on a planet that does this 24 hour sun cycle thing. So photoreceptors really regulate the circadian rhythm that then also regulates when we should be eating and if we're going to digest our calories and all that other stuff. Now you were mentioning the photoreceptors that are in the retina, but we have photoreceptors in other parts of the body that are relevant. I've seen uh, some studies that were done in sleep labs where, uh, people were in complete dark. So there was nothing hitting the eyelid and then light was shown on the skin with a pen light. So it didn't enter the room at all while cortisol was being actively monitored in the blood and cortisol started to elevate just from photoreceptors in the skin. Mm, yeah. Which is very interesting because it means that, you know, again, if people are sleeping in an environment that's not dark enough, even if they have a sleep mask on, yeah. they're going to be sleeping subadequately. Yeah, that's an interesting point, you know, because I often will tell people if your lighting environment is not ideal, you can sleep with a sleep mask and that's going to help because our eyelids are also translucent, which means that light can go, can, through and can go through them and affect our circadian system, even though your eyes are closed and you're sleeping. And in fact, it's a technique that you can use for teenagers that have, that have the desire to stay up later, delayed sleep phase syndrome, uh, that you can actually help to dial their you know, their sleep timing back a little bit and their wake timing. So you have a light alarm that wakes up, goes off at four in the morning. The child sleeps through it. The light enters into their eyes and it pulls because the timing of light really matters. Like a good example is if I pick up today and I fly to Italy, then when I arrive, my physiology is going to be completely synchronized to San Francisco still. When I arrive there, it's, it, the timing is going to be completely off, you know, completely flopped over the, over the course of days as light is entering, as I try to maintain a normal schedule there, my physiology will completely reset. Yeah. So think about that. Timing of light really matters, both if you're getting a lot of light before you go to bed, but also before you wake up. And that technique can actually be used to help 
people that ordinarily have a really hard time waking up get up earlier and then want to feel like they want to go to bed earlier. And a common problem for some people is that they're, they desperately want to go to bed early. They're so sleepy all day. And right before bed, they, they're the most alert that they've been all day. And it's extraordinarily frustrating. Um, and that has to do with the timing of their circadian rhythm. And that's one technique that somebody can use to, to influence that. So what is it that when people are in uh, sleep environments, right, that are underground, complete light controlled, so there's no relationship to sunlight, um, and they're in either constant dark or constant light, that they have a slightly longer than 24-hour circadian rhythm. And the 24-hour rhythm has to be continuously um, adjusted by light exposure. What, what is that from? Yeah, it's a really, it's a really good question because it unveils um, some important points about the circadian system. The length of your circadian rhythm is called your tau. And left to its own devices without external stimulus, a lot of people can have a tau that is 27 hours instead of 24, 29, up to 30, sometimes shorter, uh, mostly longer. And so without getting adequate light, the your own rhythm, your own 24-hour rhythm can elongate. And that can really lead. So, so let's look at a couple of things here. So the timing of that rhythm can elongate, but it can also then shift right? So elongate and it can shift. All of those can mess you up in terms of how well you feel the next day and how well your physiology is performing, how well you're recovering. So yeah, you're right. Without, If you're living in constant darkness, this is some of the earliest work that was shown here. They showed that when people don't have that external st stimuli, if you left somebody in that condition for weeks and weeks at a time, you could have started off where your 8 a.m. was their 8 a.m., right? Because mm -hmm. you, you started off in the same rhythm. But weeks later, you know, it, their 2 p.m. was your 8 a.m. because their timing had completely shifted. Complete, or excuse me, their 8 a.m. was your 2 p.m. It completely shifted. And so, um, and elongated. So yeah, so that's an important point to mention that we need light in order to maintain healthy timing and healthy tau. Now, when you talk about needing light, so obviously light suppresses melatonin and increases cortisol to kind of regulate that primary circadian rhythm, that primary kind of hormonal circadian rhythm, cortisol, melatonin, and uh, antagonistic relationship. But everyone also knows that vitamin D and sunlight have some major things to do with each other, right? Um, anywhere on the skin, photosynthesis of vitamin D, and not just vitamin D, but whole aspects of the vitamin D process, vitamin D binding proteins and receptors are stimulated by sunlight. But like nitric oxide, there's yeah. is affected by sunlight. There's a we're actually photosynthetic creatures that do lots of things. ATP is upregulated by near infrared light, mm -hmm. and so it's pretty fair to think about. I think that we have a whole set of like photic nutrition. Yeah, it's like we need a bunch of different nutrients. There is intensity and ranges yeah. of light that's actually necessary to do a lot of aspects of our physiology. Yeah, that's that's an important point too the tone of light changes across the day. We have at dusk and dawn, uh, it is very different than high noon. And speaking about needs for light, the need for the absence of light. So we, we need different tones, we need different intensities, and we need absence, all of it. And uh, I love, I've never heard that term before, perhaps you made it up, but that sort of photic nutrition is, um, is, is a cool way to put it. And it's absolutely true. So I 
I have a, I'm curious, your kind of um, philosophic musings on something. Yeah. We think about before artificial lighting. So let's say, obviously it depends upon how far people were from the equator and what time of year it was, but let's say that on average we're looking at 12-hour light and dark cycles. People were in a lot more dark than they are now. They were also in a lot more light, right? Like they had a lot brighter light during the day. Yeah. Um, like you mentioned, orders of magnitude more lumens outside than inside. Yeah. And so their cortisol went a lot higher, but then it came a lot lower at night, right? Their melatonin got suppressed a lot more during the day, but then came a lot higher at night. Like they had actually just a more intense circadian rhythm. Yeah. And to try and make our light more efficient, we take all the near infrared out because that just is producing heat, not producing light. But that's the part that actually stimulates ATP production and cellular energy. And there's lots of it in the sunlight, which is why it's warm. So it's like just totally different light, yeah, right? Totally. But so not only did we get more light during the day, but we had more waking hours that were in dark. And so, of course, that meant we're going to fall asleep better at night. But maybe we have a little light, like everyone was around the campfire. Right. So this is very dim, no blue light you know, in that spectrum. And we think about the effect of it on our psyche and our cognitive dynamics. Mm -hmm. And so melatonin is made from serotonin, right? So you've got increased serotonin with the dark mm -hmm. and just very different cognitive states. And people yeah. kind of know when, when they're out camping and there's no artificial light and they're hanging out around a campfire, mm -hmm. there's like psychologically different states that are less productivity oriented and maybe more being and interconnectivity oriented I've heard indigenous cultures talk about that the more time they spent in dark was really key to having increased dream time awareness, which meant introspection, mm -hmm. connectionship with each other, biosphere. Yeah, you, you have any thoughts on maybe like effects on psychology writ large across whole populations not having that? You know, that is it is such an interesting question and one that I think we don't even have anything more than the sort of hypotheses to understand. Although we can extrapolate from what we understand about, you know, again, seasonal animals. Um, it's very likely that if you think about it, fire has been argued to be a part of the human evolution anywhere from 800,000 years ago, probably more likely starting around 350,000 years ago. So that was, probably daily, right? For every single person that lived in, on the planet. We also know that for 99% of our time on earth uh, as hunter-gatherers, we were our, our physiology was shaped by this light, dark seasonality, how that would change. Most of those people were somewhat equatorial, sub-equatorial. And now, you know, we, went, we had these great migrations. I just got back from Iceland a couple of days ago. And it was 24 hours of light. I've never been, I've never been in that uh, situation before. It was really interesting. Um, that was the first challenge to our physiology. You know, 24 hours of darkness, 24 hours of light, depending on the time of year. But now, those are still much more subtle compared to I think the, you know, holding screens and living in light, turning on the bathroom light. One flash of light can have a very powerful effect on your circadian timing. So, you know, a simple thing that I would like to stress since we're talking about light um, and I'll go back to some of like the big picture ideas, uh, but it's too, it's too important not to mention. If you have a, a young baby, their circadian system is not fully developed when they are born and it continues to develop for at least six months out of the womb 
uh, getting cues from the mother and and also having that develop from the exposure that the baby's got to. So what happens? Well, the babies need to eat in the middle of the night. Go into the room, pick up the child, turn on the light. That can really mess up their their circadian rhythms. We know that children that are incubated in the NICU because they were born prematurely have drastically increased risks of chronic disease later in life, like fivefold increases. So we're just beginning to really appreciate the effects of, uh, you know, lighting on on our physiology from birth to its development to different times in our life to later where we develop cataracts and you know, that filters the blue light that's coming into our eye. And so, you know, what happens to the circadian cycle of older people, it shifts backwards, right? They, they want to eat earlier, go to bed earlier, wake up earlier, more fragmented sleep over the course of the night. I'm going to be giving a talk at AHS, the Ancestral Health Symposium in a month, looking at hunter-gatherer sleep patterns. And I look forward to diving into the literature this month. Um, but yeah, to go back, I don't think that we really know the impact of how light is fully affecting our physiology. We know that, like you said, red light can have an effect on, you know, mitochondrial biogenesis. Um, we don't get a lot of red light these days, right? We don't get a lot of red light, you know, like we, during dusk and dawn, like we used to. Well, what happens though, if you get a certain amount of it? So one is the amount that you get and the other is the timing. So let's say, yeah, well, I want to get my red light exposure, but you get in the middle of the day. Is that an abnormal signal? Uh, for your body or do you actually need it during times where your body thinks it's dusk and dawn? So there's just a lot of questions that um, still need to be addressed. And I'll give you one kind of clear example. The Syrian hamster is a seasonal animal. And I was mentioning this slightly earlier, but when, the, when it becomes fall and the tone of light changes and becomes more red and dim and there's more darkness, that will initiate this process and the process happens where you have decreased neurogenergic signaling in an area of the brain called the ventral medial hypothalamus. And as a result, just by light changing, it will promote a state of metabolic syndrome. So you have increased triglycerides, increased fat accumulation, alterations in uh, cholesterol levels. All of this has a purpose. The purpose is to have the animal gain as much fat from the food that's still available sure. before a period where their food is no longer available. And that helps them stay alive during, during the winter months. Are these sorts of processes happening to us? Or, you know, we consider ourselves not to be seasonal, but we really don't know. We really, because how many, you know, we'd have to really study hunter gatherers um, and this question specifically, and that's just not been done yet. So next time, not this session, but when we go into more advanced topics, talking about um, near infrared light therapy, low level laser therapy, transcranially, um, adjusting with jet lag, using light therapies, uh, light in the ears and intranasally, all those fun things. We'll dive into some of those like uh, neurotech topics because cool. it's interesting. Also, as far as chronobiology, I think I'd love to dive into um, the biphasic sleep and mm -hmm. the polyphasic sleep, especially since you said you're diving into those topics, getting all our sleep at once versus having our sleep broken up. Yep. Um, I'm curious, just on that topic quickly though, chronotypes, night owls, morning birds, um, some thoughts on that being genetic or induced for other reasons. We should, we should save that for the next talk because it's totally relevant to hunter-gatherer biphasic sleep. Yeah. 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 Somebody had to be awake all the time protecting the tribe. 
Yeah, there's some interesting research that just came out on that. So we, I think you know that's it. all that will flow together well. All right, good. So let's let's talk about applied things for people. So if people, you know, we're we're, want, we're wanting to we've talked a little bit about effects of sleep on psyche, cognition, and physiology. Some of the underlying dynamics of sleep. So what are some of the main reasons that people either sleep poorly or have a hard time falling asleep or not enough? Let's start with that. Yeah. So 50 to 70 million people in the United States have some sleep disorder. Sleep disorders range from restless leg syndrome, obstructive sleep apnea, central sleep apnea, narcolepsy, multiple, multiple forms of insomnia. Uh, and I know I'm missing some, uh, REM sleep, yep. REM sleep behavior disorder. Yep. So those all have their own unique components. Um, perhaps we should focus on voluntary sleep curtailment or the things that anybody, whether you have a sleep disorder or not can either benefit from or have impair a, a normal state or even one that is more vulnerable because there's already a sleep condition. The things that, it's often called sleep hygiene. If you think, what are the things that are going to get you good sleep? You have to think you're a sleeping environment and you're sleeping behaviors. And so for environment, you want your room dark, cool, uh, calm, and, and relaxing. Um, the ability for your body to uh, control its own temperature is really important for sleep initiation, sleep depth, and sleep uh, consistency or consolidation. So reducing something called wake time after sleep onset or WASO. So not having a lot of fragmented sleep. Um, so for that, people have different temperatures that they feel comfortable, right? Some people are hot, some people are cold sleepers. The body does a pretty, within a narrow range, the body does a pretty good job regulating by sticking a foot out of the covers, right? Um, so we tend to like, or a hand or your head, they call them radiator parts. These are parts of the body that will have more efficient exchange of body temperature. You see a very specific process that takes place during sleep initiation where, and our body temperature is controlled into two different departments, compartments. So there's your periphery and your core. And so you could be freezing on the outside and your core is perfectly protected. Um, during sleep initiation, you actually have a vasodilation of your periphery. And that allows for your core body temperature to release some of its heat. And that rapid drop in, in core body temperature will initiate sleep. That can be really hard to do if you're sleeping in a room that is too hot. Your body can't... Uh, one big reason that is addressable but common is for people that don't have um, the right temperature in the room. It's just too warm. Yep. Hard time going to sleep and their sleep stays lighter. So that's one of the first things to address. Now... Not everyone who's listening is going to want to do this, but uh, there's a sleep tech called Chili Mat, which is actually a refrigerated bed topper. Yeah. Um, so just to share a little bit why that is actually possibly meaningful for people. I love my Chili Pad. I, am, uh, I do not have any relationship with the company or any of the companies that we might talk about. Um, it, it's a really wonderful device. It is a very thin mat that rests on top of your mattress. It has silicon tubes that run through the mattress and a tube at the end of the mattress or the, the topper that goes down into a, a box. And that box has water in it and a fan. And it, you can actually control the temperature that is running through those silicon tubes 
very well. So you can make it as cold as 53 degrees and I think as warm as like 90 something. And so if you're somebody who tends to be very, very cold at night, you can warm it up the bed. And if you're somebody that tends to be, you know, very, uh, very hot, like I, I need it to be cold, um, then you can turn it down. And I, you know, a lot, oftentimes too, people sleeping in the same bed have completely opposite needs. And so the chili pad has for a king bed, they have one where you can have, uh, you know, cold on, you can basically control the temperature on both sides independently, which is great. Um, I've played around with it. So I used to think, oh, I really want it to be, you know, super, super cold. And that has to do with some of the hunter gatherer literature that I was looking into and um, thinking that perhaps temperature fluctuation over the course of the night is another important variable. So it, you know, in great situations, we can set the temperature a certain degree, 65 degrees, let's say, and it just stays there. But if you think about a hunter-gatherer community living outside, the temperature actually changes and de decreases over the course of the night and then begins to rise. Could that actually independently have an influence? So one thing that I've done is I use my chili pad. Um, I plug it into a Wemo switch, which is a Wi-Fi switch. Um, and because it's a Wi-Fi switch, I, it's a part of my smart home technology. So that means that I can configure it to actually turn on or off at a certain time. And so when I am sleeping, then I have my uh, chili pad pretty cold, but I have it turn off at like four in the morning. Because what I found is that when I started to sleep with the chili pad, I'd sleep great and really deeply in the beginning of the night, but then I'd wake up a little too cold at four in the morning. And so now this turns off in the middle of the night and then it warms up and I continue to sleep soundly and uninterrupted until I actually naturally wake up. So that's one thing that I, that I do. And it's a, for people who need it, it is a, you know, absolute lifesaver. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So factoring that falling asleep has to do with a pretty sharp drop in core body temperature. There are some other things that people can do before going to bed that can help yes. increase body temperature drop and help them fall asleep better. Yeah. So, taking a hot shower, a hot tub, a sauna. Uh, I had on my own podcast, Lari, um, Yari Lakanen, and it's all about sauna and how, uh, just kind of the summary there, in 2,000 men over 20 years, men who sauna four to seven times a week had a 65% reduction in all-cause mortality, 65% reduction in Alzheimer's disease and other forms of dementia, and also myocardial infarction really impressive results. The magnitude to the degree of people that are reg exercising regularly compared to those who aren't, um, and probably some overlaps in mechanisms. One part of our conversation, we talked about, well, when do people typically sauna in Finland? Because it's extraordinarily common as a part of that culture. And most people, it's, it's, it's variable, but most people will, will do that right before bed. And that you could also Im imagine that some of the benefits that are seen in that study might be from the depth of sleep that saunaing late at night causing, you know, very, a lot, a lot of heat is going to cause your blood to travel to your periphery. That's part of the cooling down process. You step out of a hot sauna, you've got all of your blood at your periphery, and then you've got more rapid exchange and loss of core body temperature. That's why if you've ever gotten out of a hot tub late at night, and then all of a sudden you just sleep like a rock, that's the mechanism at play. It can help, again, initiate sleep and deepen it. So that's a great thing to do. You don't need a sauna. You can also just use a hot shower. Yep. So you're talking about sleeping environment. Yeah. And so, so making sure the sleeping environment is cool enough, uh, right temperature in general, cool enough is one thing. Uh, people being able to do a hot bath or hot shower or sauna, if they're doing a hot bath, 
there's a lot of other fun things, Epsom salt, lavender oil that they can get into. Mm-hmm. But what else in their sleeping environment? Yeah, that's some 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 pharmacological intervention with teas and essential oils. You know, maybe that's part of the more advanced talk for next time. But yes, absolutely. So then, an eye mask, earplugs, things that will. There's, um, we all have our different arousal thresholds. So things that are going to alert us and wake us up out of sleep. Now, there are people that can sleep through, they could live right next to a train and the train could go by and they'll sleep right through it. And the brain has the ability to filter out, it, you know, the first couple of nights that the person moves into that apartment, they wake up because it's a loud noise. Eventually, the brain learns that that's not a, uh, a signal that should alert, that should make them fearful. And yet at the same time, a crying baby that's less decibels in another room, can st- the brain can still do some filtering and understand what's important and what's not. Yet still, some people have that sort of arousal threshold where rolling over small little noises can disturb them. I tend to be, I'm, I'm one of those people, so I have been sleeping with earplugs for 20 years and an eye mask. And it, there's probably some uh, placebo effect as well. So I put it on and it's just time, you know, time for bed. Um, so there's a conditioned response as well of relaxation. Um, but that's an important one. And one thing I'll mention is with a lot of these things, everybody should go through a process where they try to figure out what's right for them in their current environment at this time of life and do some experimentation. Um, good sleep cannot be judged from one night of sleep. Uh, you know, let's say you slept more one night and you didn't feel, you felt groggy the next day. That doesn't mean you typically don't need a lot of sleep. It just, you know, you got to play with it. Um, so do, yeah, do some self-experimentation. So that's, I would say, mostly for the environment. Cool, car, cool dark, comfortable, um, good sheets and, and mattress. Mattress is a whole other subject, but you don't want essentially to sink into the mattress with memory foam. You want to be able to control body temperature really well. And after that, there, are very, there is variability in terms of like what individuals need. Um, then there's the behaviors. So getting enough physical well, activity. Okay. Well, we're on sleeping environment. Yeah. I want to double click on a few of those, then we'll get into the behaviors and then yeah, yeah. we'll be at a good wrap point. Cool. So you mentioned the importance of people experimenting. Obviously, this is their sleeping environment and behaviors, but uh, there's a bunch of sleep monitoring devices that can be part of someone's sleep environment. Um, historically, many of the early ones had low enough accuracy that it was hard to make meaningful sense of them. Uh, obviously, people are not most of the sleep monitors available are not EEG based. So you right. know, you're, you're extrapolating. Um, what can you say about sleep monitors as a way for people to experiment in addition to their own subjective experience and just paying attention to how much they slept and how they felt um, and which ones, if any, you have found accurate enough to be worthwhile? Yeah. I, I was thinking about talking about this next time as we're getting more sophisticated, but it's a great time to talk about it. Because, yeah, if you're doing some self-experimentation to try to understand your sleep, it's really bad. You know, one, the thing that ultimately matters as much as anything else is subjective sleep experience or sleep satisfaction. You wake up and you feel really restored. Um, and so a lot of what I've been working on and, and thinking about is, is a concept called the restorative sleeper, somebody who wakes refreshed every day and feels alert all day, every day. That's, that's the goal, right? And whatever it takes to get there, as long as you're not you know, there's not some pathological process that's happening in the background that is sort of in surprise because your sleep is inadequate. But sleep monitoring through quantified self or self-tracking has become a lot more popular. Earlier versions before these sort of monitors was 
diary, sleep diary, which has been used in research for a long time. Um, and in those diaries, you tend to just look at what time do you go to bed, what time do you wake up, and then you can understand at least the sleep period length. So sleep period is the time that you try to go to sleep and then you actually wake up. And you know your sleep efficiency is actually happening somewhere in there. And then there's the timing again. So remember the timing is also really important too. So are you ha- do you have great variability in when you actually go to bed? That's another independent factor that matters. So the earlier versions of the quantified self devices, th- these instruments that you can wear on your body that can detect some aspect tended to have act- actographs, which are things that detect movement. Um, in fact, the earliest version was more sophisticated called Zio, and it went out of business, but that was a headband that had a unipolar lead that was designed to try to be as close as possible to a PSG, although it was never validated, and therefore it, it was probably too onerous to, for a consumer to use, and it was not validated, so the sleep techs and, you know, just didn't really, they were waiting for that information. Next was the Fitbit, which is most common, and this, this is worn on the body. Um, earliest version was a little clip that you put on your jammies. Next was you know wrist worn, typically, um, and that again was measuring movement and also sleep timing. And there was some real value to that because then you could give people, you could help them set goals: how long do you want to be in bed, um, and then also help to focus on sleep timing. The, the newest generations, and there's also things that will lay on top of the mattress, and they will detect things like movement and now even heart rate. And as we're getting into more sophisticated devices, like the Aura Ring, this is a, um, a ring that is made out of a group from Finland. They were ex-Polar employees. If you remember, Polar made the heart rate trap that measured heart rate. And this is probably the most sophisticated consumer heart rate track, excuse me, um, sleep tracking device on the market. Um, at least that's been shown in some studies that have been conducted looking at the top sleep trackers that are available. Why is it good? Well, where it's detecting, it's detecting movement for one. It can also look at um, your pulse rate and also pulse rate variability, which is an indication of physiological stress. So now what we're seeing is the ability for these devices to collect multiple different physiologically relevant parameters that you can then triangulate to then pinpoint what is happening, what stage of sleep are you actually in? And that's what a polysomnography does. It is a multiple measures of sleep. So looking at heart rate, breathing rate, EEG activity. And while polysomnography, these 27 different leads that are on the body that make it impossible to sleep, um, while they can detect, they're better at detecting things like sleep apnea and narcolepsy, um, this is much better for actually detecting physiologically relevant sleep because it's so so much less intrusive. Um, so it's less accurate, but more relevant to what we're really trying to measure. Because it's not trying to assess uh, or diagnose sleep pathology. It's just trying to then give you good insight into what your sleep is actually like. And then that can, depending on the level of sophistication of what it gives back, that can do a variety of things. There are behavioral elements, and then there are things that can ultimately say, gosh, you know, I get a lot more slow wave sleep when I sauna at night. Or if I, you know, I had no physical activity this week and I didn't walk a certain amount of steps and I'm, you know, my slow wave sleep was lighter. The future of this is where algorithms are running in the background that are actually collecting data over time periods and then statistically telling you what matters. That's where this will go. Because you can also be over-responsive to 
I had a teaspoon of almond butter and I got more slow wave sleep. And therefore I think that that's really important. That can happen. It could be true or it could be false. So you could have those sort of false positives, but this is where things are going in terms of physiology or behavior modifying devices. And it's very, very powerful. Cause like I said, you could then figure out, gosh, you know, when I adjust my room temperature to this degree, I'm actually sleeping more deeply. And um, that's pretty cool. We need these countervailing technologies to help us in today's world. And um, that's why I'm so excited about them. Now I want to do a, th- more thorough review on Aura, but we've talked about it a little bit in the, from what I've seen on it, I'm really impressed with the hardware. Yeah. Uh, the other one that I really have liked for at-home sleep monitors that are not invasive is the Bedit yeah. system. Have, do you have much thought on that? You know, I've not used it, so maybe you could tell. I know that it lays on the bed, um, and so P- it detects movement. Piezoelectric, very subtle you know, pressure sensing. Mm-hmm. But supposedly the pressure sensing is enough that it's not only looking at movement and breath, but even heart rate variability, pulse and heart rate variability. Yeah. And then being able to put all those, uh, you know, various axes of information together. Um, I think I'm actually about to re-put the bed on my bed and grab the aura and compare them. Yeah. Um, so then I'll report back on that. When yeah. Talk next. I do that with my Fitbit and my Aura, and yeah, then I'm yeah. like, well, which one's right? <laughs> well, you, you got to put them both on and then actually go to a sleep lab right. and get exactly. the EEG done. And yeah. Now, Aura has been compared in the sleep lab, right? I mean, there's some. It has, yes. And so they, you know, they have, I mean, the benefit to them is people haven't been doing this sort of tracking very long. It's, it's new. And Polar has been around for 20 something years. So they have these engineers and algorithm developers that have been thinking about this stuff for a long time. So that's a really cool attribute to them is experience, rare experience. Yeah. Um, and the position of where they're collecting information on the finger actually happens to be very good because a watch will move around more. You're detect on the, on the front side of the wrist. So underneath my Fitbit, I've got, that's where a lot of the signal is detected for heart rate. This is more venous, so that's not a great place to actually detect heart rate and heart rate variability. You can't. But underneath the finger, you have more arteries and then veins. It's more stable. There's less movement. So you have a tighter connection. This has this ring samples at 250 times a second versus the Fitbit watch. This is a Blaze that samples at 12 times a second. And with that degree of monitoring, you actually can get a better signal overall. Um, and so that's why I think you can have, you know, the confidence to know what you're getting back. And yet still, big data is another component. Fitbit has the advantage of having millions of people use their devices and then being right. able to sort of retrofit and curve fit their information that the, the weak signal that they get back into actually pretty relevant and, and, and uh, accurate information because the big data component. So that means looking at millions of people and understanding what happens um, based off of, you know, massive amounts of, of data. So that's, that's sort of an advantage that they have currently. Um, so yeah. If people want to learn more about how to actually kind of study and then optimize their sleep better, creating a sleep diary, quantified self devices, what things to pay attention for, is there a good resource you recommend? Let's see. Yeah. I mean, you're right. There's stuff is, all, there's stuff all over the place. Um, and so is it consolidated? It's hard be, to consolidate because, you know, some things are, are common, sleep hygiene, things that everybody should do. I do a lot of speaking on that. And my restorative, the restorative sleeper model that I put together is aimed at trying to 
give people a one-stop place to uh, hit most really important factors. So what are the things that you do you know, during, during the day that actually help good sleep at night? What are the things that you should think about for your environment? And what about light? So smart light rhythms, day, evening, and night. You know, most people that do that and actually stick with it are going to do well. You've got a conducive environment. You've got good behaviors during the day, good exposure, environmental exposures. You're going to be in much better shape than most folks. And then it's fine tuning after that. Um, and so, you know, it kind of depends on what that individual's need is. It, their, their sleep could be disrupted because there's so many things that can disrupt healthy physiology, like diet, like healthy gut functioning. And all of those do have an impact on our physiology and the, the functions that, the, that you know, those tissues and yeah. organs do. So um, our next session will be diving into those things. Yeah, cool. And uh, okay, so in just kind of wanting to wrap up here, sleep environment. So you mentioned earplugs. I can't sleep with earplugs, so I like white noise generators. Mm-hmm, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I happen to like addressing air quality, so I just run in a high-quality air filter in the room that does both functions. Mm-hmm. Um, and specifically high-quality air filter, meaning depending upon what the environment needs. For me, that's a HEPA filter and um, negative ion generation, which there's some good research affecting sleep, uh, mm-hmm. having increased negative ions in the sleeping environment, but without ozone. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's a cool tool. Yeah. And then I think my single favorite tool is blackout curtains. Yes, yes. And... You know, I use, I, they're amazing and they're, they're better than an eye mask. I have a good eye mask that actually blocks the light from, from, from coming in under the mask. And yet, what's still, it called? Uh, you know, I got it on Amazon um, and I don't know the name. Oh, but, good. I, yeah. I, I haven't found any that are perfect, but I've found some that are pretty good. This one's way better. I, I've bought this one multiple times um, because. It's just a much better, you know, mousetrap. But um, with a lot of this stuff, I mean, there's other sort of experimental technologies like, you know, stuff that you've mentioned that I did not, that I don't know a ton about, um, but could legitimately have a a meaningful contribution to getting good deep sleep. Now on the bed topic, this is actually kind of a deep topic when you start to get into the actual chemistry of a mattress and a mattress that is treated with flame retardants that happen to be kind of endocrine disruptors and neurotoxins themselves that you're breathing in. Um, And it has other kind of VOCs in it. The way that most mattresses become filled with mites um, or susceptible to mold or um, so there's like, there's a lot that goes on as well as the orthopedics of a mattress, as well as the temperature regulation of a mattress. So there's of course a lot of like, particularly good orthopedic mattresses and then there's a lot of particularly good organic mattresses and unfortunately those two are not the same thing so some of the good organic ones suck orthopedically and vice versa yeah and then you have a few that do really good job of both um maybe next time we'll actually dive into that more i i went ahead and uh, i did a deep dive in the mattresses at one point i actually have the samina mattress system um and made a pretty significant difference yeah that's that's uh, we can talk about it because you're going to know more than I do about some aspects of the mattress. And then, you know, I've done a little bit of an analysis on some of the more orthopedic elements. Um, so that will be fun, fun combo. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right, fun. And then other than sleep environments, so we want it to be quiet. We want it to be dark. Um, 
we want it to not have associated stressors so that when they're in the room, they're not associating mind activity, whatever stressful thing. So yeah. being attentive to their sleep environment is important. Sometimes dogs in bed, kids in bed, their partner in bed can be a major factor to pay attention to. Yeah. Um, other than the sleep environment things and really kind of making a sleep sanctuary, mm-hmm. what are the main behavioral sleep hygiene things? And I think probably what eating before bed versus not, blood sugar during the night, inflammatory food topics. I think that would be one good one to address. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So having a big meal before bed, um, one thing I noticed in speaking with the, the CEO uh, of, uh, excuse me, the president of, of Aura Ring, um, we both were commenting that I, I was in a situation where I, I, I just skipped dinner because I was fasting and I got so much deep sleep like way more than I had. Um, so just skipped it all together. I, I, de- I definitely try to eat early for the most part, but socially that can be really challenging. Um, you know, meal timing is not completely dependent on y- you, the individual oftentimes. It's when the family is ready, when the kids are home from school, when the, the meeting is, it just, that's how life tends to be. And so that can be tough, but it matters. The food quality, food itself matters as well. So Marie Pierre Saint Ange did a study that showed that it didn't wasn't necessarily the food that was taken in right before bed, but the food that was eaten that day, particularly high fiber, uh, actually contributed to deeper slow wave sleep. Right. High saturated fat in her study was the opposite. It led to more sleep fragmentation and less slow wave sleep. So food matters. Um, then uh, timing of food, the size of the meal. Um, if you're thinking of also about behaviors too, if you want to think about it as sleep behaviors, if you will, getting into bed and then using your devices, light emitting devices, you can certainly change um, the tone and the intensity of the light that is being admitted. Yep. For some, using your phone before bed is stressful and some it's stress relieving. You feel like, okay, I'm on top of everything, I can relax. So it really depends on the individual. But what I would say is that the phones have messed up my sleep in the past because I would wake up, let's say early in the morning, and instead of just letting myself go back to bed, I would start to check email and start to surf. And instead of going back to falling back into sleep, I now just lost an hour and a half of sleep because of my phone and it's right next to my bed and it's so easy to grab. And you have to think about your relationship with it, um, what you want to do with, you know, if you have sort of a clear goal, I'm just not going to look at my phone until X, you know, X time. Um, you have to think about what's going to work in your world. And it, you could, I could put out like, Hey, here are some clear guidelines and be sort of authoritative about that. But the fact of the matter is we all have to sort of figure out what works for ourselves. Um, but understand certain principles that are at play. And so some, some of those guidelines, I think just at least so people know you, you mentioned, uh, uh, the light coming from the computer, the phone. So downloading the Flux app is a possibility. Uh, this takes out the blue spectrum, which yeah. is going to be most stimulating to cortisol. Uh, I think that's a good thing for many people. I happen to be irritated by orange light, so the Flux app bugs the shit out of me. Yeah. But I think it's good for a lot of people. Uh, some people wear blue blocking glasses, yeah. right? And so wearing some kind of blue blocking glass is another possibility. Yep. Obviously, decreasing the brightness of their screen and the brightness of indoor lighting and the blueness of indoor lighting before bed are all big positive 
steps one can take. Yeah. And then just a wind down routine mm-hmm. where after the last time someone is on a screen, there is some process that prepares their body and mind for bed. Mm-hmm. Probably makes as much of a difference for sleep as anything else that I know of. Particularly for people that for some people, yes, absolutely. Um, if you tend to ruminate or have any anxiety or just a racing mind, meditation, a wind down routine. Um, it's often a hot good. shower or sauna we talked about. Yeah. Thinking about um, ways in which you're, you're transitioning into, into sleep. For me, I actually like to take notes about my next tomorrow. It, yeah. I feel like I sort of, you know, purge any ideas that are in my mind. I like that writing time, even if it's just work related. And then I organize my day in terms of like what I want to address first, what's pr- priority. It's very relaxing to me. That's my last thing to do every night too. Yeah. Yeah. Because then the mind stops running because it actually captured it all, right? It's kind of a exactly. David Allen's getting things done. When you've so, captured it all, mind gets quiet. That's 100% true in my world. Yeah. If what you're uh, re- wrestling with in your mind is kind of emotional content, then just journaling, super valuable. If what you're wrestling with in your mind is a lot of to-dos, then just actually doing a brain dump of that. Another technique that I've used if I'm wrestling with some sort of emotional content is to listen to a podcast which is not typically what you'd want to do, but I will put on, I will put on something that captivates my attention mm-hmm. that is different than the own internal dialogue that is keeping me up. Um, whether the valence of that emotional content is you know, negative or positive or whatever, it's just activating. If I realize that I'm in that state, then I putting on a podcast, listening to somebody else talk and getting into their stream of thought can help me, my mind relax. And I don't use that commonly, but I do use it pretty reliably when I find myself in that situation. Yeah, I actually love reading before bed, but not on the, not on an iPad or a Kindle or actually like paper book. Yeah. Not so dim lit that it's bothersome to the eyes, but the lowest kind of lighting that is fine for the eyes. Yeah. <clears throat> and then, of course, not reading something where it's stimulating and you want to go take notes about what you're going to do with that knowledge. Yes. So reading philosophy, reading spirituality, reading um, you know anything that is kind of like generally going to be positive in its orientation, but yeah. also maybe on the boring enough side that it actually you kind of fall asleep as you're reading it. Yeah, is a something I enjoy. Oh, Daniel, I've I've tried this and that. I it's I guess indicative. I'll read a half a page and I'm out. Yeah. <laughs> so reading it's I should do more, but I don't. I, I get frustrated because I can never make it past like a page or two. It's a great way for me to go to sleep, but it's not great for covering books. <laughs> uh, now, coming back to the other things you were talking about, the food before bed, I just want to mention, so like Ayurvedic medicine, it was one of their classic things of not eating several hours before bedtime. Yeah. And so the digestive system actually gets to rest while the body's resting. So the digestive system's not active and awake and the body's trying to rest during that time. On the other side, you've got the concern around going low blood sugar at night and then cortisol spikes when you go low blood sugar to release glucagon. And so there are a whole bunch of people that are dealing with blood sugar things that actually say eat a handful of nuts or eat some MCT oil or something that's not particularly heavy before bed, but where you're going to have some slow release uh, fuel that will maintain blood sugar throughout the night. What are your thoughts on that? I mean, obviously test and individualize, but general ideas. Yeah. Generally speaking, 
the control of blood glucose goes through a very, it's very uh, tightly regulated. And it is a perfect example of the dance that the brain does and the body does in order to regulate our physiology. So if you think about it, if you ate dinner, you have some blood glucose circulating in your bloodstream, you go to bed and then the brain, what does the brain do? It actually releases growth hormone, right? Cause you get into the deeper stages of sleep. Um, actually, excuse me, before I even get there, you should be under low light, right? Dim light. Insulin is suppressed by melatonin. So melatonin acts directly on pancreatic beta cells and it suppresses the release of melatonin, or excuse me, of insulin. So typically if you had a certain amount of circulating um, glucose, then that would be cleared out of your bloodstream by, by the insulin. Instead, melatonin keeps it active which is actually one of the problems if you have a very big meal and then it's, it's dark and you've got, it's not getting cleared. So that is both sort of a positive thing and then potentially a downside uh, to eating late in a high, high, high glucose meal. Um, then blood sugar is continually regulated by the release of growth hormone, which will also keep it active, keep the, uh, the blood glucose um, adequate. As the night advances, then you are still, of course, suppressing insulin by the continual melatonin release. Um, but you also have a change where now it is being regulated by some circadian factors. So by the slow rise of cortisol. So cortisol is, is rising um, as a, a way to actually keep glucose in the, in the bloodstream for a bit longer. That is that dance that takes place with, under healthy normal physiology. A big problem uh, that a lot of people have is probably due to circadian misalignment. Um, it's so incredibly common in our world. So you measure cortisol and is it, is, is it actually cortisol that's causing a problem or is it the fact that just your rhythms are off, right? So this symphony that is playing is playing out of rhythm and you now have the ball being dropped, if you will, at certain points. One of the very first things that people should do that are dealing with you know, a variety of issues is just get your circadian system under control as best you can. A lot of light during the day, dim light at night. And then I wear glasses, but I do it or keep everything very, very dim and have, I have a setting on my phone. Actually, I'll show you. So um, if I push three times, it goes really, really red. It's called color shift. It's basically like wearing, um, you know, the, the blue blockers. And it's actually much more pleasant to read. If you're just reading, if you're doing anything graphical, the orange really stinks. But anyway, do, do that. And that's going to help with the blood sugar regulation. If you have a problem, then you got to kind of figure that out. And the first place to start is to get your circadian rhythm in line. And then, you know, after that is in line, take, give it about three weeks of doing everything perfectly. Then see if it persists and, you know, go from there, see what the issues are. So I think this is a good wrapping place we actually discussed quite a lot this time to foreshadow next time um talking about sleeping all at once versus having sleep broken in a couple chunks or multiple different chunks talking about how much of people's circadian rhythm is kind of innate versus changeable and people who are oriented towards later night or early morning uh how much someone's sleep need is fixed versus changeable genetics that are involved how we can assess those genes and understand them um, and then getting into some of the neurotech uh, more and some of the supplements that can affect sleep. Yeah. Um, I think this was a good foundation to understanding why sleep is important 
some of the mechanisms that we know of that mediate it and it, some of the entry foundations to uh, starting to optimize it. So yeah, it was fun. Yeah, it was. Thank you. Thanks Thank for you. being here and thanks for your work in the field. This is, you know, when you, like you were just mentioning with, with insulin and the effect on diabetes, and we just think about, you know, you think about weight, you think about diabetes, you think about Alzheimer's, cancer, so many things that are sleep affected. Um, obviously food, obviously exercise, obviously mindset are all critical, but if we were to get sleep better optimized, given that we have built a world that has, uh, didn't factor it in the way that we did lighting and whatever, we just didn't factor it. Now we have to come back to that as we're learning more. Yeah. It'd be really profound for not only physiology and disease and economics associated, um, but for psychology. And that also means human relationships. And that also means the overall quality of all kind of human behavior at a macro scale. So, um, important. Yes. Well, yeah, thank you. It's for me, it it continually provides, uh, incredible challenges to really understand things well. Um, and I look forward to that. You know, I, I, there's no way that I'll ever understand everything just in this one, you know, sliver of health. And yet uh, it's it's kind of fun in a way too. It'll provide an endless puzzle. And yet at the same time, you don't have to wait a lifetime to, understand some of the, the major players that can affect your life. You can get these things that are really beyond basics that are pretty sophisticated. And yet uh, part of the scientific dialogue is to always like challenge every, every element of that. So that's kind of fun to have a foot in both worlds, translating what we know, at least currently as best we can into interventions that can help make people better, live well, be happy. Now I did want to say as we're closing, um, you have a new project that you've been working on for a while, some years that is launching. I, depending upon when this podcast launches, it will probably already be launched, which is Human OS, Human Operating System, and uh, where you've got kind of like most es- essential vital content on um, many of these topics, uh, sleep, diet, exercise, and, and then also behavioral support um, built right into it. Uh, so that's exciting. I'm I'm really looking <clears throat> forward to seeing that platform. How can people go find out more about it? Yeah, I'm tremendously excited about it as well. It's my life's work. Um, absolutely. Uh, HumanOS.me. And um, if you go there now, it might direct you to a site called Dance Plan, where you can check out the blog and do a lot of podcasting and blogging there. But uh, depending on when this is released, it might just go, you might be one of the first people to check out the new system, which I'm working on, you know, in some form, starting with a behavior model that I developed uh, years ago in academia to now operationalizing that into a tool that's meant to help people in an extraordinarily sophisticated way to maintain a pattern of living that's going to yield all the results people want uh, is close. Um, but it's the, the kind of the, without going into detail about it, the idea here is that we sometimes look at technology as though it's going to intervene and do stuff for us. And the whole point of this is that it's best viewed technology is when it helps us do the right things. So we're still at the center of how we live and the choices we make. And this is meant to sort of empower you to become an expert at your own health. And I call it a personal health mastery platform. And it's not something that you can come and in one week, you know everything. It's more about this is something that accompanies you along your journey. And uh, it will for me as well. I learned new stuff through it out every day. But um, that's, uh, that's the purpose. And I'm excited to release it. Awesome. We're excited to um, be able to share more of the content that you're generating on there. 
Thank you. All right. Thanks, Dan. Thanks, everybody. This was fun. Yeah. This podcast is for informational purposes only. The podcast is not intended as a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. You should not use the information on the podcast for diagnosing or treating a health problem or disease or prescribing any medication or other treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider before taking any medication or nutritional, herbal, or homeopathic supplement, and with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you have heard on this or any other podcast. Reliance on the podcast is solely at your own risk. Information provided on the podcast does not create a doctor-patient relationship between you and any of the health professionals affiliated with our podcast. Information and statements regarding dietary supplements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration and are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to therein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician. This podcast is owned by Neurohacker Collective.